Hello, I'm Tony Collins and this is the Rugby Reloaded podcast. My guest this week is Bruce Berglund, author of The Fastest Game in the World, Hockey and the Globalisation of Sport, published last year by the University of California Press. Bruce is both a scholar and a fan of ice hockey, and the book displays a huge amount of learning about the game around the world, as well as a deep and sometimes critical understanding of its culture and traditions. Listeners may wonder what a podcast on rugby and football codes is doing covering ice hockey, but the reason's obvious when you think about it. Although played with sticks and a puck rather than hands, feet and a ball, the culture of hockey is exactly the same as that of the football codes. And, as we'll discover from talking to Bruce, the history of the game follows that of the football codes around the world too. So, uh, welcome to the show, Bruce. When you hosted the New Books in Sport podcast, you had me on a few times, so I'm finally pleased to be able to return the favour. Yes, it's good to uh, be talking to you again, Tony. Way back... Boy, it was a decade ago, I think, that uh, I first interviewed you. Yeah, yeah. So, well, I've got to say, I really, really enjoyed the book, and I think it's a, it's a massive contribution to, well, obviously the history of hockey, but also to the history of sport for for a whole variety of reasons that that we'll get into. But uh, just to start at the beginning, what made you write the book and this type of book in particular? Because obviously, a global history of anything is a massive undertaking, but it must have been especially so for a sport that's played in so many countries around the world. Yeah, that was the challenge, right? And that had, for years, uh, had prevented someone from writing a, uh, a global history of hockey, is that uh, you had to deal with hockey not only in North America, but uh, in Europe, in, in Russia. Uh, and so my background as a historian is in the history of Russia and Eastern Europe. And in particular, I did uh, most of my work in, um, in Prague in Czech history. And so, you know, as a specialist in East European history, just it's a requirement that you have to get at least a functional reading knowledge of a number of different languages. And, and fortunately, that served me well uh, when I was looking at doing world history of world history of hockey. So uh, for the book, I, uh, you know, I had grown up, you said I was a fan of the game. I also grew up in Minnesota playing the game uh, up until I was about 15. I had experience coaching youth hockey. I had experience refereeing hockey. Uh, so um, um, hockey is in my family. My dad was a terrific hockey player. Uh, so this was a sport I knew well. I knew um, uh, as a kid, I was, I was a nerdy fan of the sport. So I love the lore. I love the stories. And as I was thinking about, you know, I wanted to do a project uh, in sports history. Uh, and as I was casting about it, it made sense for me to, uh, to do a history of, do a history of hockey. Uh, the challenge was uh, getting an understanding of, um, you know, the different regions in which the sports is played. As you, as you said, this was a great challenge, but, you know, it was just a terrific process. It took me about five years from the start of the research through the publication of the book. Uh, I went to, I sometimes lose track, I went to eight different countries. Um, I think I have research in seven different languages. Uh, so it, it was just really, I got to go to the Winter Olympics in 2018 as, and called that a research trip. So it was uh, just a terrific process. And, uh, uh, you know, so far I've been happy with, with the feedback I've gotten. You know, people say they, they appreciate this view of the global game. One of the things that I think is very interesting, which you talk about obviously at the beginning of the book, is is the evolution of hockey rules. And that what I said right at the top of the show in terms of, hockey basically coming from the same 
moment in history in the same type of culture as the football codes. That's really true, isn't it? Because hockey, uh, as we know it today, was codified just at exactly the same time as soccer, rugby, American football, all the other games. And it also owed something to rugby rules, didn't it, originally? Yes, correct. So when we talk about hockey, what we uh, what we typically mean is the Canadian form of the game. Uh, so the, the game played today with, with six players on a side, uh, played with uh, the, the rubber puck uh, on a rink about 200 feet by 90 feet. Uh, so this game originated in, in Eastern Canada, uh, in the 1870s, the 1880s. And, and as with, as with rugby and with other sports, uh, there is an origin story. This origin story is based in historical fact on, on March 3rd, 1875. Uh, there was a game organized in Montreal at an indoor skating rink. Uh, there were nine players on a side. And uh, the players, these, these were all young men from the, the English-Canadian elite class. Uh, the, the principal organizer of the game uh, was a, an engineer named James Creighton. He was originally from Halifax. He had moved to Montreal to go to university. And uh, Creighton and his teammates were members of the Montreal Football Club, meaning the Montreal Rugby Club. And uh, the, the match was, was intended as a way for these, these rugby players to keep in shape during the, during the winter. And uh, so Creighton, in devising the rules of the game, uh, he drew from lacrosse. Uh, but he also drew as well from rugby, principally with an offside rule and uh, a prohibition against forward passing. And I have to throw in here, you know, so, so Creighton didn't invent hockey. Uh, hockey was being played um, in North America and in Europe with a variety of different rules, a variety of different, if you can say that there were rules and a variety of different names. Uh, so for instance, there was a, there was an English variation of the game that goes back to the early 19th century that was being played in the, in the Fenlands and in, uh, in Eastern England, uh, which was uh, 11 players on a side played outdoors on a rink as big as a, uh, a football field. And uh, so the distinction of this game in Eastern Canada was that the game was moved indoors. You had a smaller size rink, uh, unlike the English game, which is known today as bandy. Uh, unlike the English game, this had a, a fewer players on each side. And uh, there was there, an English writer in, in Switzerland at the turn of the century who had an opportunity to see both games. He said, you know, the Canadian version of the game is more like rugby. English bandy is more like soccer. And when you look at the development of the of these two games, that that uh, analogy really fits. And, and in the course of my book, I tried to follow that in terms of their later development. The other thing I found very interesting about the book, which which I didn't know very much much about it at all, is the fact that as well as the the codification of the game taking place at the same time as the football games. There's also a very strong influence of muscular Christianity, which obviously you get particularly in rugby, but also in the other football codes as well. So it, so hockey, Canadian hockey, if you like, is very much a part of that 19th century British world, British middle class worldview as the other football games. Exactly. And uh, for this part of the book, I drew a lot on some recent scholarship on Canadian history that has looked at Canada 
as part of part of the empire and as being British in culture and uh, looking at Canadians identifying in the late 19th century, identifying themselves as as British. And one aspect you see this is in the education system. Uh, hockey emerged, as I said, among the uh, these elite English Canadians, these young men, and in most cases, they were products of English-style boarding schools. And at these schools, you have sports as, such as cricket, uh, rugby, and when uh, hockey develops, Canadian hockey develops in the late 1870s into the 1880s, this sport becomes popular at these, uh, at these boarding schools. And um, it's unique as a non-British sport that's adopted and approved by the administrators and the teachers at these schools. And so, uh, and you see, and one of the things I look at in the book is how hockey connected uh, with the belief in, in muscular Christianity that was promoted at, at these schools, as well as the belief of, which is tied in with muscular Christianity, the belief that these schools were training young men to be the leaders of the empire, correct? And, uh, and what was fascinating to me is looking at um, late 19th century Canadian culture and how this idea that Canada was really the linchpin of the empire was, was pervasive, uh, that imperialism was really wrapped up in an emerging Canadian nationalism in the late 19th century. And hockey fits into this in the sense of, if we think of, of what's important about muscular Christianity, right, is the idea of you must learn discipline, you must learn teamwork, uh, you must learn when you, when you take your knocks and you get up and you keep pushing on, you learn perseverance and so forth, and all of these are, are essential, to, essential to hockey. You know, I play, uh, I play senior league hockey now, and I still have ingrained, now at age 52, more than at age 15, the lesson is imperative that when I get knocked down, <laughs> I have to get back up. So, uh, so this was, yeah. Um, you know, one of the interesting uh, things I found in terms of muscular Christianity and the importance of British sports at these, these elite uh, Canadian schools, cricket was the, you know, so we're in North America, right? The boys want to play baseball. The, the teachers and the administrators say, no, you must play cricket. Cricket was the only approved spring sport at these schools until the 1990s. Really? That's what, I didn't realize that. That's very interesting. Uh, and as you, say, as you say, it goes to emphasize that importance of the um, 19th century British way of life to, to Canadian culture, oh, which raises an interesting question of, was there any place for um, French Canadians, for Quebecois? in early 19th century hockey because to an outsider it appears that there's much more um, Quebec influence in hockey in Canada than what there is in either Canadian football or, or rugby in, in Canada. So has that always been there or is that a later development? Yeah, this is an important question. Uh, so uh, Canadian hockey develops as a sport of these elite English Canadians. Uh, so it it begins in the 1870s and the 1880s in cities like Montreal, Ottawa, Kingston, moves later into Toronto. Uh, so in Montreal, you not only have uh, uh, the French, you also have a significant Irish population. And initially, um, the, the English, you could say the, the, the English players of hockey in early hockey 
they were quite exclusive about wanting to make this sport a, a preserve for, uh, for their social circle. And uh, there were, uh, you did have the development of French and Irish clubs. It was the Irish clubs that were first allowed to play against the English clubs in Montreal. Uh, the French clubs were allowed to play later. And there is some evidence from that time of English Canadians saying, hey, you know, you're, you, you guys are looking pretty bad by not playing the French. You know, you're, you're playing into the stereotype that the English are, are prejudiced against the, against the French. And so it's, it's in looking at this early history, you see these two tracks of development, right, where the sport is a game for the elite English-speaking um, young men of, uh, of Eastern Canada. And then it begins to spread West into places like uh, Winnipeg, uh, Calgary, Edmonton. Uh, but meanwhile, is also this uh, uh, development as the sport gains popularity. Um, the French want to play, the Irish want to play, other immigrant groups want to play. Already in the 1890s, uh, there was a black hockey league in, in Nova Scotia. Uh, they were excluded from from the white leagues, but uh, uh, it was organized by black Baptist ministers who saw this game as a way of, so again, the ideas of muscular Christianity, of a way of kind of building the, uh, the morals of their community. Uh, so you see these two tracks moving, and this is going to be something that, that continues throughout the, uh, certainly the early history of the game, of the game as a, a sport of the elite levels of society, but also one that's becoming popular uh, throughout society as a whole. This leads us on to another very interesting question, which is how hockey spread around the world, or particularly, as you say, Canadian hockey, the Canadian version of hockey spread around the world. Because for some sports that had that very British middle class worldview and outlook, they weren't really that, I'm thinking particularly of rugby union here, but also I think it's true of cricket as well. They weren't really that interested in expanding beyond the English speaking world. Um, And to some extent, even soccer in Britain wasn't that interested it, it kind of spread for for slightly different reasons so given that background how did hockey take hold of in the way that it did of europe russia and even further afield you do see with hockey it's interesting there's an enthusiasm among these early hockey players that they do want to they enjoy the sport enough and they see it as enough of an advance on the earlier folk forms of hockey uh, that there is this enthusiasm about spreading it. So, so in the 1890s, you see Canadian hockey teams going down to the United States Uh, in the United States around the great lakes in the Northeast. There were, there were variations on hockey played under different names. So Canadian teams would come down and say, Hey, you know, let's, let's introduce this. It's the same process we know in football in North America, right? Where you have teams going across the border between the United States and Canada saying, Hey, what are your rules? And Hey, what are your rules? Uh, So hockey begins to spread Canadian hockey. uh, Really the the first record we have of a match in Europe uh, is at uh, Buckingham palace in 1895. So um, it was uh, the Prince of Wales uh, and uh, uh, his brother. So what would it be? Edward the seventh, the future Edward the seventh and George the fifth who were playing against the sons of Lord Stanley of Preston, uh, the governor general uh, who 
introduced or gifted the, the Stanley Cup to uh, the champions of Canadian hockey. Uh, so that's recorded as the first game where you have uh, a puck. So what defined the Canadian game early on was the use of this rubber puck as opposed to a ball, which is what you see in bandy and most other very uh, versions of hockey. And then a longer stick. So, uh, so in bandy, the stick looks more like what you see in field hockey. For instance, it's a shorter, a shorter stick with a, with a curved blade. The hockey stick goes up to about your chin, uh, and the blade is, is supposed to go flat on the ice. And so you see this first game in about 1895. Uh, you have the first clubs in London forming in 1896. So the sport... Um, I can't say it, be, it becomes popular. You only have just a handful of clubs in London, it spreads to France in the first decade of the 20th century. And then from there uh, into places like Prague and Berlin and Vienna. Uh, and, you know, the people were bringing it, you know, again, back to this, this point about the, you know, enthusiastic missionaries of the sport. Uh, it was typically either English or Canadian students who, as they travel across the continent, uh, they'd bring the sport along. For instance, I know the story, in Prague, uh, it was a uh, uh, an English student who was at the conservatory studying violin, uh, who brings along this game that had been brought from Canada to England and then from England onto to the continent. So this is how the sport spreads in Europe. Uh, and it's in 1908 that you have the beginnings of the French, of course, create a, uh, a federation, an international federation uh, to bring some some organization. One of my favorite source materials that I found uh, throughout all my research, and this is at the, the in Zurich at the headquarters of the International Ice Hockey Federation. From the minutes of the first meeting of the federation in 1908, there's a big sheet of paper about poster size sheet of paper in which uh, they wrote across the top the names of the different countries where hockey was played. Down the side, they wrote different aspects of the game, like the length of the halves, the size of the goal, the number of players. And, and on this chart, they listed out the variations in how the game was played in all these different countries. So, for instance, in Canada, you had an offside rule that was similar to rugby, in England, you had an offside rule that was similar to soccer. In France, you didn't have an offside rule at all. Well, and the other thing I think, that, that, again, was an amazing fact from the book, was that by the 1930s, almost every professional po- hockey player in the world was Canadian, um, which I, I guess demonstrates the, the, the absolute centrality that the Canadians had in, in, develop, in developing the game and promoting the game at the top level around the world. Yeah, so even though Canadian hockey already at, at the beginning of the 20th century, you see it in Europe, you see it in Germany, uh, in Austria-Hungary, in France, in England, um, in Canada, uh, just just that head start that the sport gets um, really brings about this, this development across, across the country. Uh, in terms of the popularity of the sport and in terms of the growth in the number of players. And, and it's really in uh, the 1890s. Uh, and, and one historian who's looked in particular at Montreal has tracked the number of, of players on clubs in the 1890s. And so the sport really booms during that, that period across Canada. And uh, so you know, you have hundreds of clubs being organized in, in Ontario alone. Uh, by by the First World War. And so as the sport spreads to Europe, 
uh, it's, it gains adherence, it gains, you know, converts, we can say, uh, but it's still on a much smaller scale than what you see in Canada. And so fast forwarding ahead to the 1930s, hockey really starts to boom as a popular spectator sport in Europe. And I talk about in particular, the cases of London and Paris, which we don't think of now as, as hockey towns yet in the 1930s at, at Wembley arena uh, in Paris at uh, the Valdiv, this, this arena that was right underneath the Eiffel tower uh, hockey was was one of the main sports there, and they would draw thousands to uh, to matches. And for those clubs, um, the the bulk of the players were drawn from Canada because this is where you had the most hockey players in the world, or the greatest concentration, and the best talent in terms of players. Now, at this time, I should add. Uh, in other countries in Europe, in particular in Switzerland, in Czechoslovakia, and in Germany, you did have uh, players who, in terms of their talent and their ability, could match Canadians. And you would see this. Uh, there, was, there was a big tournament every year between Christmas and New Year's in Davos, Switzerland, where Canadian players would come over. And these were usually Canadian players studying at Oxford. Uh, they would go to Davos and play against European club teams. And by the 1930s, these Canadian university students were pretty much matched evenly with, with, European, uh, with European clubs. Uh, but yes, you know, still in 1930s, and this will carry on into the post-war decade, uh, the real source of hockey talent in the world uh, was in Canada. Still today, Canada has more registered players than, than any other country in the world by far. One of the things you get into fairly early on, and I think this is something that distinguishes hockey from the other football codes, is the extent of women's involvement in the playing of the game in the inter- well in the nineteen twenties. And there's, you know, as you describe it, there's a kind of uh, there's an explosion of women's interest in the game. Lots of women are playing, but by the nineteen thirties, that's um, that ebbs away because women are being encouraged to participate in figure skating, which is seen as more feminine and all the stereotypes, uh, whereas hockey is seen as, you know, as, as a, a very masculine macho game. Uh, and I think that's a fairly... Uh, well, I think that's fairly unique because obviously women's football of any code doesn't get that big in the 1920s. But also I think it says something about the way that women's sports have sort of risen, declined, risen, declined over the course of the, over the, course of the 20th century. Yeah, and this was fascinating to look at is the growth of women's hockey in, in Canada, in particular in the 1920s. And we can connect it to the broader broader social changes uh, that happen after World War I in North America, as well as in Europe, right, where women go into the workforce during the war. Uh, they, they stay in the workforce to a large extent during the 1920s. You have a lot of young women moving into cities in Canada during the 1920s. And so you have uh, churches and uh, city governments and uh, employers who are trying to figure out what do we do with all these young single women. And they created various social organizations and and athletic teams. So not just hockey, but also basketball. Uh, You have you have various sports teams for women. And uh, so so women's hockey really expands during the 1920s. You also have university teams. I should add that in Canada. Uh, And the sport does become popular. There are barnstorming teams that travel around in the uh, outs in British Columbia, playing to large audiences. 
uh, women's teams. Uh, so you have a league in Quebec and you had a league in Ontario. Uh, and there is record of the champions of these two leagues meeting at the, the large arena in Montreal and a crowd of thousands watching, uh, watching this match. So in the 1920s, uh, women's hockey was certainly popular. Um, there were male sports writers who would tout women's hockey as kind of proof of, of Canada's modernity, right? That we have strong women playing this, this rough sport. But in the 1930s, with both the, uh, with the Depression and then later with the war, women's hockey begins to go into decline. And then, as you mentioned, uh, the, the fascinating story that, that I look at in, in the book is the emergence of the popularity of figure skating. And uh, one key figure is Sonja Henny, uh, the Norwegian Olympic champion during the 1930s, and her popularity becoming a movie star uh, really drives a surge in figure skating among among young girls in North America, as well as in, as well as in Europe. And then in 1948, uh, a Canadian woman, Barbara Ann Scott, wins the gold medal in figure skating at the Winter Olympics. And this drives the popularity of figure skating uh, in, in Canada. Barbara Ann Scott is, is the sweetheart of Canada. And so for, for parents of young girls, for girls, uh, figure skating becomes the more popular winter activity uh, than hockey. And you also have during the 1950s, uh, as youth hockey is growing in Canada, uh, it becomes explicit, you know, the organizers of leagues, they see this as a way to, uh, you know, to train up young boys, not as a, uh, a sport for girls. And they're surprised when girls even want to play the sport. So you see this shift that occurs in the 30s into the 40s, and then it's only really in the 1990s that that uh, women's hockey and girls hockey really begins to take off uh, in terms of a sport having broad participation. I mean, this kind of brings me on to another issue that is uh, that is very much part of hockey culture, and also I think one of the things that it shares in a in a very deep way, particularly with rugby league, and that's the question of violence in the game. You've got the you've got the the classic quote in the book that you can't beat them on ice if you can't beat them in the alley, and it's that kind of intense masculine physicality and the use of violence in the game that, in a sense, is exactly the same as what you found, you know, as I said, particularly in in rugby league, but also in many of the other football codes as well. So, can you just say something about the events of that, and is that still? The same today, because obviously with the con- concern about concussion, things have changed very much. Yeah, this is always one of the, the central issues in the sport, and it has been the case since the sport's development, is, is the place of violence in the game and the attempts to limit the violence, to clean up the sport. Uh, you have this, this really false notion that there was a pure form of hockey uh, where it was just skating and passing and speed and skill, and it had somehow been corrupted, whether by working class players or ignorant American fans who just wanted to see blood on the ice. And, and that's all false right from the start. In fact, in that first match in Montreal in 1875, a fight broke out after the match between the members of the clubs and some spectators. So, so you have violence right from the, right from the very beginning. And uh, as you know, right with, with the culture of muscular Christianity and with the, the, the violence of these schoolyard games, right. And, you know, there was this, this sense 
in the 19th century, this, this violence is in some way instructive. You know, this, this violence is, is good for our boys in training them to be men. Okay. So we want rough games. We want the hardness. We want the ability to come back from getting knocked down. All of these things are important in terms of, of turning these, these boys into men who are going to, to lead society. Right. So we want violent games, but we don't want them too violent. Right. And we see this already in early hockey where the, the, the leaders of the sport are saying, well, we want, we want the rough game, but we don't want the fights and we don't want the cheap shots and we don't want guys swinging sticks at each other. And, and as a number of commentators, both at the time and afterwards have pointed out, well, it, that's pretty hard to tease out. Right. If, if, and, and I've played in games like that, right. Where you have the sense of, no, we were playing clean. Those were clean hits. And the other team saying, oh, those are cheap shots. Right. So, so it's really hard to define uh, or, or it's hard to delineate. We want a sport in which you have good, clean hitting, good body checks, good defensive hitting, uh, as opposed to the sport with cheap shots. And, it, and it's a sport, and I imagine it's the case with rugby. I've never played, but you, know, you just get, when you're playing and you're knocking into each other, the frustrations come out. And, and for hockey players throughout the decades, they've insisted on the necessity of, of violence in the game, even fighting in the game, as a way to police themselves, right? And they say, you know, hockey is a, is a rough, frustrating sport. There are going to be guys who take cheap shots at your best players. We need fighting in the game, um, you know, separate from, from defensive hitting. We need fighting in the game in order to keep those guys in line, right? In order to protect our best players, in order to make sure that the game doesn't get out of hand. And so still today, even though the level of violence, and, and here I mean in particular fighting, even though fighting has really decreased in, in professional hockey today, when you watch an NHL game today, uh, you know, with so many European players, uh, the game is just so fast. The players are so skilled. It's just back and forth, back and forth, up and down the ice. Uh, there's very little fighting. Fights do break out. We saw a number of fights this year. Um, but uh, the, the players still insist that fighting is integral to the game in order to uh, instill basically a player's code, right? That, that the rules instituted by the league, the rules carried out by the referees are not sufficient to maintain order on the ice. Therefore, uh, therefore fights are necessary and it's always going to be part of, part of the game. So uh, that's what you have in, in Canadian hockey. European hockey is much different, right? So we have, like I said, these two different tracks. Canadian hockey follows more of the route of rugby. European hockey follows more of the, the route of soccer. In Canadian hockey, you have the sense that uh, uh, violence, hitting is integral to the sport. Even fighting is necessary at times, whereas in European hockey, uh, that's, that's really downplayed. One of the other questions that it's kind of relevant to um, to rugby league in the north of England is the way in which hockey is, you know, it's the national game of Canada, yet it doesn't dominate the NHL. I mean, I can't remember exactly how many teams there are, but the, the actual number of Canadian teams in the NHL is now a very small minority. And 
has that taken away some of the character of the game? Has it made it less Canadian? One of the debates that, that we have here in the north of England is that if Rugby League expands, so for example there was a Toronto franchise until last year, uh, then that would take away the essential character of the game and it will no longer be the same. Yet hockey still, despite the fact that you know Canadian teams don't dominate the NHL, hockey still seems to be essential, the quintessentially Canadian sport. This is, this is a key question right now because this week we have the finals of the Stanley Cup playoffs. And for the first time in, uh, since 1993, a Canadian team is playing for the Stanley Cup, the Montreal Canadiens, you know, one of the most august teams in, in hockey history, uh, winners of the most Stanley Cups in, in NHL history. And this question is is perennial. This is this is a constant question, uh, particularly among Canadians, right? If this this matter of is the sport still ours? Uh, we it's it's it was invented here. Uh, it was we have we have the most players in the world. We've had all of the greatest players in the sports history. Is the game still ours? Uh, they look to the NHL and they make exactly the point you did. They say most of the teams are in the United States. All they care about are American dollars. Uh, they follow a different kind. You know, they're they're just examples of American greed. Whereas the pure form of the game, the Canadian game, has has been lost. And in my book, I look at how this this is throughout the history of Canadian hockey, and you see it especially in the night or not especially. You see it uh, really turn up in the 1920s in a fascinating way, uh, with complaints that Canadian hockey was being Americanized. This is when you have the first. U.S. teams in the NHL. So the National Hockey League was founded as a Canadian National League, right? It was founded with Canadian teams. In the 1920s, you have the first teams in the U.S. in Boston and New York and Chicago. And Canadian writers lamented that they were losing their sport. So already in the 1920s, there are these fears that American money, American markets, American fans and their demands for for a higher scoring game. So to come back to rules, let me let me make this point. You know, so so hockey was founded, or Canadian hockey was founded, according to you know really borrowing from rugby rules, in particular with offsides and with no forward passing. Well, as the game becomes a spectator sport in American cities in the 1920s, fans want more scoring. And it's in the late 1920s and the early 1930s that the prohibitions against forward passing are eliminated in order to open up the game and bring about uh, more goals. And in 1930, when they allow forward passing in the NHL, the number of goals doubles in the league, right? And so the ideas were appealing to appealing to these American audiences which for Canadians is seen as a corruption. And this, this plays out all the way down to today. And, and me coming from Minnesota, right, a northern state uh, where hockey is very strong, uh, hockey culture is, is uh, uh, you know, really integral in, in Minnesota culture, I buy into this as well, right? When a team like the Tampa Bay Lightning, which is playing for the Stanley Cup Finals right now, you know, when, it, when a team like Tampa Bay or Nashville or Dallas, right? When they advance into the, into the finals, it's just, you know, I think this is, this is just a corruption of all that is good and wonderful in the sport of hockey. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So so I have the sense of, you know, uh, like many Canadians, I grew up playing hockey outside on a natural rink, right? Uh, In the cold. And for me, I still have that romantic version of what hockey should be. But the reality is, 
uh, that this, you know, most, most kids in the world today, you know, boys and girls, they grow up playing the sport in indoor rinks, you know, basically in giant refrigerators. And, and this is the direction hockey has been going for decades now. And so this notion that there's a pure form of the game, uh, that Canada is somehow the, the sole protector of this, this form of the game, uh, is really, and, and there are Canadians who acknowledge this, that we have to recognize that, uh, uh, the game that we created, that we brought to the world is, is bigger than Canada. And we have to rejoice in that. Yeah, absolutely. And you've, you've touched on um, what was going to be my final question, which is a kind of existential question for hockey. And that's the question of global warming, because no other sport is founded on so specifically on part of the climate that obviously you've got to have fro- ice and frost to be able to uh, to be able to play the game. How is global warming affecting the game and how do you see it affecting the game in, in the future? Yeah, so uh, this was one of the themes I wanted to bring throughout the book was uh, the connection of hockey to environment and to climate. So hockey develops during the 19th century when the Northern Hemisphere was was colder than this than it is now. This was the end of the, the Little Ice Age. And so you had uh, ice, outdoor ice in England, in Germany, in Central Europe. Uh, but already by the turn of the century uh, in England, also in France, Converts to hockey recognized that their opportunities to play outside were becoming limited by, by the change in climate. So, so from the early decades of the sport, there was a, this awareness that winters were getting warmer, we're losing the playing season. And this is why Canadian hockey ultimately succeeds as a global sport, because it was devised as a sport that could be played played indoors and when you have uh, uh, the advent of artificial rinks this allows this game as opposed to the English game of bandy played on outdoor fields of ice it allows Canadian hockey to succeed Uh, to the present now with with global warming yeah it is really a in in the view of of many mostly in North America this does pose an existential crisis to the game in that in Canada and in the northern tier of the United States, so many people have this experience of playing outside that there is a notion, uh, and you see this especially in, in Canada, there is this notion that hockey is, is fundamentally connected with the outdoor rink, with the neighborhood rink or with the frozen pond, the frozen river. Uh, in you see this in Canadian culture, uh, the, the greatest player ever to play the game, Wayne Gretzky, uh, is, is always associated with the backyard rink that his dad made for him. Uh, in Wayne Gretzky's hometown uh, in Ontario, uh, the, the climate has changed so much since he was a kid in the, in the early 1960s that you know, it's difficult to keep a rink now. Uh, and so there's this concern that you could say uh, the spiritual hearth of the game, this outdoor rink is being lost. And what will happen when we no longer are able to have outdoor ice? But when you look at the global game, uh, you know, I, I, I spoke with, uh, I interviewed Dominic Hasek, uh, who was, uh, he's a Czech goalie. He played in the NHL. Uh, he was a hero of the Czech Olympic team when they won the gold medal in 1998. And he said, you know, other than a few times when he was kids, uh, kids skating on outdoor ice, he played his entire life on indoor rinks. And so that's been the norm for, for players in Europe for a long time. Uh, but, but again, you see the sense of, of 
North Americans and especially Canadians thinking that um, this version of the game that uh, is, is played outside is somehow the only version of the game. And yet, you know, for kids who are playing in Korea or in China, um, that, that isn't part of their experience. And, and now the interesting thing to kind of recapture, and I finished the book with that, you know, to recapture this fundamental part of the game, uh, you have the spread in canon, the United States of, of outdoor pond hockey tournaments, where you get, you know, a bunch of teams that go out onto a frozen lake and they divide up the ice and, and uh, you have sponsorships and all kinds of commercial tie-ins, so forth. Uh, but this idea that, that this is the pure form of the game. Right. And the NHL has jumped on this by staging these outdoor games in football stadiums or baseball stadiums uh, every year. And this is a huge draw for fans. Right. You can pack in 80,000 people. It's always great for merchandising. Uh, But it also taps into this this nostalgia, this notion that um, outdoor hockey is the original, the pure form of the game. And we need to we need to maintain that somehow. Great. On that note of reinvention, uh, I'll draw things to a close and say thanks very much, Bruce. That that was absolutely fascinating. And we'll have to do it again because, A, there's a lot that we spoke about that we could follow up on today, but also there's a load more in the book that's uh, that's well worth revisiting and, and talking about, not just because it's interesting from a hockey point of view, but I think also in terms of you know other uh, other football codes, uh, in terms of either what they can learn or what the, um, the lessons of... Uh, uh, of hockey are um, just to remind listeners the book is called the fastest game in the world hockey and the globalization of sport it's by bruce Berglund and it is published by the university of california press if you want to follow bruce on twitter you can find him there on at br Berglund, and my twitter handle is at collins tony and my website is www.rubbyreloaded.com where you can find the complete archive of the show together with show notes for this episode and also a link to Bruce's book, Should You Want to Buy It, which I can heartily recommend. So thanks very much, Bruce. And for listeners, until next week, thanks for listening.